Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. What is this virtue that has to be cultivated? And of course, this is the point about virtues. Because they're a deep interior transformation, they have to be constantly cultivated again and again. Well, it is this interior disposition of, in fact, having the right love for wealth, not being even attracted to it, except for what it is most of all for. So, the person who has become the liberal man, in fact, has this glorious relationship with wealth where he's not tempted by it, he's not drawn to it for bad reasons, he, in fact, sees it, for what it is and loves to use it for what it is best used for. And what, and I'm of course going to draw some things out that I don't have time to give you the quotations on everything. What, what most of all does the liberal man see wealth as for? Serving the needs, the needs, keyword, of people. After himself, and his own, he has an especial attention to the needs of others. So note the first point that we've seen here again is the proper interior disposition of wealth where he loves it for what it is. Second point, liberality is especially practiced in giving to those in need. Liberality is especially practiced by giving things so those in need, I bring you to the second quotation. You have to read this one carefully. It's very beautiful. It belongs to prudence. The, the objector here, the objector had said, isn't it more prudent to hold on to money? So why is the liberal man always, always first thinking of giving it away? Doesn't prudence dictate that you keep? And this is his response. It belongs to prudence to keep money, lest it be stolen or spent uselessly. But to spend it usefully is not less prudent, but more prudent than to keep it usefully. See what's going on there? I'm going to read it again. It belongs to prudence to keep money. Oh, yeah. The prudent man, another great virtue, will in fact hold on to wealth, lest it be stolen, so prudently protect it lest it be stolen, stolen or spent uselessly. He's going to hold on to his wealth lest it be spent uselessly. So hold on to it versus spending it uselessly. But to spend it well, usefully, is not less but more prudent, indeed more prudent than to keep it usefully. What, what, what is the point? Beautiful point. How does the liberal man see wealth? What is it for? It is 
for the needs of other people. I remember when I first studied this, it was just, it was so thrilling to me, and I have to admit, I think part of the reason it was so thrilling to me was precisely because I experienced it as so far from the where, from where I am. But the, the, the notion that one who has, is, is being transformed in this way, that when he has the opportunity to gain wealth, how does he look upon it? How does he experience it? Has this experience of, I've just gotten some more wealth. I can help people now. That's exactly how he experiences it. And it's not phony. Question number three. As stated in this and the preceding article, it belongs to liberality to make fitting use of money and consequently to give it in a fitting manner since this is a use of money, giving. Again, every virtue, this is a little, a little technical, but bear with me for just a moment because I just want to paint this picture for another couple moments with you here about liberality. Again, every virtue is grieved by whatever is contrary to its act. You know, I love the moral life very much engages our passions. Aristotle and St. Thomas say, you know a man by what makes him feel good and by what grieves him. The virtuous man is being so transformed that he is, doesn't just act well, he's grieved by that which is contrary to what is good and enjoys that which is good. Again, every virtue is grieved by whatever is contrary to its act and avoids whatever hinders that act. Now, two things are opposed to suitable giving, namely, not giving what ought suitably to be given, given and giving something unsuitably. Wherefore, the liberal man is grieved at both, but especially at the former. If, if, if he were in a situation where he had not given what should have been given, he would be very grieved by that. Or if someone is not giving what he should be giving, that's, that, that grieves this man. For this reason, too, he does not give to all since his acts would be hindered were he to give to everyone. So, watch what it just said. Sometimes the liberal man doesn't give to this person only because that would hinder the whole project of giving. This person doesn't really need it. This person does. I'm not going to give it to that person because it would hinder my giving it to this person. That's what that just said. Fourth quotation. Here, St. Thomas brings in some fathers of the church to give a certain weight to the centrality of this in the moral life. Again, just one little area. According to Ambrose and Basil, excess of riches is granted by God to some in order that they may obtain the merit of good stewardship. How I wish we could, we could bring the joy of that message to more in our community that has been blessed in so many ways. I'm just going to say that this is coming from the fathers of the church in St. Thomas, bringing this before us. God, according to Ambrose and Basil, excess of riches. And do you know, do you know what they mean by excess? All they mean by excess is if you have more than you need 
That's what they consider excess. If you have more than you need, then it has been granted by God for one reason. That they may obtain the merit. Now I get to look around and figure this. But it suffices for one man to have a few things. Wherefore, the liberal man commendably spends more on others. Sure, in wrapping out this, this beautiful virtue, question, what do I need? I can probably get by without that. But he wouldn't err on that side when he's looking at other people. And that is called the liberal man. He is free. The root of the word liberal in Latin is he's free. He sees wealth for what it is, and with joy, he goes about using it. Just wanted to paint that little picture for you of, that's just one of the beautiful panoply of virtues, where when we really see what it is, when we really study it, you all of a sudden have this sense of, that's, that's happiness. If I were like that, I'd be happy. Every time we study the virtues and see them for what they are, we have the sense of, of course, that's what I'm supposed to be. That I want to end up liberality with number five here. Because this is, of course, a great point. Unlike manner, nothing prevents a virtuous man from being liberal even if he's poor. Hence the philosopher says, that Aristotle, liberality is proportionate to a man's substance, i.e. his means, for it consists not in the quantity given, but in the habit of the giver. And Ambrose says that it is the heart that makes a gift rich or poor and gives things their value. So this, this, this wonderful wrap-up here, all can develop this virtue even if we have little for basically everybody, most everybody. In any case, for our purposes, ladies and gentlemen, all of us in more than we need and thus can and should disp disposition thing. We wouldn't... Let's go on and talk a little bit about friendship. For you there, the liberal man of one who has cultivated. Think how, we're not even, we don't even really have occasion to talk about this, but we've painted what it looks like. We, we can use our imagination and think about what would we have to do to get there. Well, in the case, the first step is no, that's what we want to be. And then we start to take the actions and of course, as Christians, particularly then, we pray that we become that way. But if we don't pray to become that way and focus on it, we won't become that way. I'd like to assert to you, ladies and gentlemen, the good life is lived in friendship. There is no such thing as a good human life that is not being lived in true friendships. Show me the man who is living out well the order which we've been talking about.
the right order of human life and living that order together with someone else who is living that order. And there is no other way to live well than to be striving with a friend to live well. My, my kind of shorthand definition for friendship is living one good life, one happiness with someone you love. Living one good life, one happiness with someone you love. Or in other words, living the right moral order. Something that our society tends not to realize. We use the word friendship so loosely. And it was used loosely in Greek times too. Just We're only going to be able to do this in the most brief of what of ways, but Aristotle saw clearly there's friends, there's friends, and there's friends. Everybody has friends, but not everybody has friends. It's funny, it sounds funny what I'm saying, but I, I've lectured a lot on friendship, and everybody has at least an intuition for what I just said. In all the sense of there's friendship in the real sense. And that is where life is really happening. And the main thing, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to suggest to you is this. If we're serious about the moral life, we've got to be serious about making real friendship be the object of our intention. For real friendship never ever happens by accident. It always comes about when it is the fruit of intentional, persevering, disciplined effort. We can have friends in the loose sense, simply, oh, I see them at work regularly and whatever, we get together, we, you know, we get together with these people, enjoy some good times. That can happen very simply. The type of thing that we're talking about here is real friendship does not happen that way. It, it may well begin that way, but only comes about as the fruit of an intentional effort. And I would say particularly, particularly today, particularly in our culture where so much militates against our having true friendship. According to Aristotle, it's seek to grow in virtue together. All right, what's the, what's the main thing that characterizes true friendship as opposed to the other ones? that we know the other for who he is and we really want what's best for him. You never call someone a true friend, a real friend, unless you have absolute confidence that this person knows me for who I am and really wants what's best for me, is really willing to work in an unselfish way for what's best for me, that I'd be happy. And of course, true friends, thank you.
Um, that's a great question. I, I, I don't um, won't purport to have the, the, the full and complete answer to that. M my sense would be to say this: um, in the spirit of our understanding of the liberal man, um, that savings have an important role, precisely unto being able to be better liberal. That that's ultimately what savings are about. That in, that in fact, you, you save to a certain extent, and to what extent, that's the great question, but you save to a certain extent, and it help, the, the key here is to have the right principle, so that I will be able to continue to meet my own needs and the needs of my own. That's the way they always speak. There's yourself and your own, your immediate friends or your relatives or your aging parents. Right? You have an immediate, and obviously you have a first a duty to yourself and those around you. They're, ve they're very clear that you don't neglect yourself for the sake of helping others. But nonetheless, the attitude is one of, if I've got this under control, then I immediately turn to start to look to the needs of others. And so I would say we, we, we keep savings with a view towards being able to do that well. I would just end by saying it, it, this, it, it's hard to say anything absolute in terms of quantities, but it's my opinion that we probably err a little bit on the side of when we go to savings. I think sometimes it can be a little bit of a function of a lack of trust in God. Now, again, we have to be careful with that. Savings have an appropriate place. But I think, I, mean, it, I think the liberal man is constantly kind of saying to himself, that's going to be okay on savings. God has always taken care of me. I'm being reasonable. Now back to the charity work. As it were. That's, that's my thought. Thank you. Thank you for the talk. Professor Tatterbeck, uh, I have a question regarding virtues and children. Is there an order in which we should train them in, in the moral virtues? I just missed the key word. Is there, a Is there an order in which we should train our children in the moral virtues? And then when you say, is there an order in which we should train our children the moral virtues, do you mean an order of kind of which virtues first? Oh, that's a beautiful question. Um, I, 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 I don't have a good answer to that. I'd love to think about that more with you as to kind of which virtues come first. I think it's very much worth thinking about that. Just a couple of very quick thoughts. Um, there is always, I think, an importance to taking a holistic approach in as much as the, all the masters say, the virtues do grow together. So to a certain extent, we do this virtue and then when we're done with that one, we'll go on and do this one. We're, of course, taking a holistic approach. There are also some that are more foundational. The, for instance, um, for adults especially, well, for children too, but it's hard to cultivate humility in children. But humility has a kind of firstness because, as St. Thomas says, humility makes us open to receive all good direction. So, it's, so if, if, if we have humility, then we're willing to hear all those that we should be hearing. So I, my inclination is to say there's something equivalent to that in children where um, we want to be trying to form them in a certain docility. But I, 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 I kind of, first of all, because if, if they are docile, then they're going to be ready to hear not only us, but others who will be in a position to guide them. 
Very quick follow-up, though. We have to be very careful. How do you how do you form children to be docile? I would I would say loving them in such a way that they have the confidence to be docile, not by a kind of over overbearingness. I'm an authority. You must listen to me. But I mean, this is what's what's so hard. It, it, that we have to, it, it, being parents, being anyone in authority, requires so much interiorly of us. The strength of our authority is always in the genuineness of our love of those over whom we have authority. And so that that come through, I think that's, that's going to be the foundation for anything then that they grow in. But again, great question that, that there's so much more that should be said that I haven't. Um, I was reading uh, number six, which is number one, article four, which seems to suggest money. If you could comment on that. And then, um, does social liberality undermine individual liberality? Well, that's a, that's, a, that, 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 that's a great question. Let me quickly read out number six. As to those who spend it more liberally, through not having experienced the want of it, if their inexperience is the sole cause of their liberal expenditure, they have not the virtue of liberality. There's actually quite, quite a bit going on there where I, it, it, it's saying if, if, you've, if you have someone who's received so much money that they don't really appreciate the value of it and they're, they're giving a lot of it away, they seem to be very genuous, genuine. They're doing the same kinds of things that a liberal man would do but they don't have the interior disposition of the liberal man. The main reason I put that quotation in there is I, want, I wanted to use it again to highlight how it's about especially the interior disposition. We need to be transforming ourselves so that it come from the right intention. That, that, was, a, that was a particular point there that I question um, went on to the second part of... So, does social liberal, liberality undermine individual liberality? And I'm going to say I'm going to say I'm going to say it this way because I, I I think there are some now to use the word conservative in the way that it is used as the opposite of liberal today. I think that there's some conservatives, my personal opinion, that go overboard in saying all charities should simply be individual and we don't want the you know the, the government and such shouldn't be in the business of doing any of these kind of social programs and so forth. I don't agree with that politically. I don't think that that, I think you can go overboard with the social aspect undermining the individual. No, I think in fact, I think this is part of the church of, of uh, liberality, that the authority is in a particular thing that, that that means that I'm for a broad welfare, but, but I am with those who just say, visual charity of a liberal disposition and be and agencies. And so, so that's why I, I think these things, great question. Problem. And we do have the problem of, of kind of the government agency replacing it, just think in terms of, well, okay, they can, and, and this is reminding us it is an essential part of right moral dispositions that are on above us. Thank you for that question. Thank you, Dr. Cudivac, for coming to St. Francis. Um, if on a, on a natural level, if a person has no experience of what a true friendship actually is, will that lack of experience on a natural level hinder the experience of friendship with the Lord? Again, great, great issue. I, I, I love the, th I, I think, yes, 
I love the theme of experience of true friendship on the natural level is a great teacher to us of what our relationship should be like with God. That's not to say, amazing, sorry, that came out as a very banal statement. Grace is amazing. Um, Grace, we can through our experience. God offers us in John, John chapter 15, it says, I have called you friends. So it might be the case that we actually first are exposed to that. I think for some that might be the case. We're conferred to us by God, although in the, that God's advances to us map onto our experience in the context, and again this kind of goes back to the children, of our having been prepared, of our having... So cultivating true friendship, helping children be prepared for true friendship, really is an excellent preparation for their under to us when he offers us friendship, when he offers us fatherhood thing in the context of our human... I think I'm about to be shut down. Isn't it amazing how we can bring the mercy and the love that Christ wants to show them in their brokenness? We might be able to be to the woman caught in adultery, that person who's just there, always bearing in mind the truth, here to love and show why. Don't sin again. Thanks for that question. In order to relate meaningfully with someone so they believe in God? Um, in, 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 well, do you have to first know the um, belief interaction discussion? Um, that is going to be a key truth that you are going to need to discern. But I think it doesn't come in the form of a question. Do you, right, uh, we, we, which is not what you were asking, we, we have our antennae, uh, don't, we're going to have to be in the position to help move them better towards it and help them think more clearly. And, and, and that's, that's, it's an art. It's very hard to, to know at times how to do that. And this is why it is important for us to be studying these things. And even if we're not going to go, go out there and be making specific arguments to them, to be able to speak ourselves about these things in, in, by way of giving witness. Just a, just a quick, quick, quick example. I think you might not know yet where the person is, but you can still kind of come forward with something where it's people, what people I think in general find appealing is do we give a witness of, you know, I'm, I'm so moved by the great challenge of, of living in fidelity to my wife. You know, what a wonderful way to present the positive of the moral order and how we see it in its truth and terror as something that is a beautiful challenge for us. So I almost would recommend, and I'm not sure if I heard your question then rightly, but kind of moving forward with a certain confidence of whether they believe in it or not, we're going to speak of what is true as though it is true because it is true, knowing that there's something in them that that will be appealing to, particularly by us just moving forward in, in a looking at the beauty of it, of it kind of way. But yeah, particularly if you're going to go deeper though, you are going to have to, hopefully you could have conversations about that explicitly. And of course, true friends know it's required that we know what it is 
that would make the other happy. And of course, in the true, from the true vantage point, real happiness will be in virtue. Again, just taking our one example there of the liberal man, if we want our friends to be happy, among other things, we want him to be liberal in our sense. We want him to be liberal. And so we work towards that. And we have confidence that he wants us to be liberal. Think how delightful it is even just the thought of leaving here today if we're here with a friend or a spouse. And we can go forth and say, you know, liberality. We can do this. We can do this together. We can support one another to be that way, to grow that way, though we know it's going to be hard. Key in growing in virtue together, and this is the key practical suggestion I'd like to suggest to you here today, is the notion of accountability. Just in a very practical way, at the absolute heart of growing in virtue together, which again is at the heart of friends living together because they want to become happy together, they're growing, they're seeking to grow in virtue together, the heart of that is holding one another accountable. What is a relationship if we don't hold one another accountable in the positive way? I, I, I like to encourage people to, and this is actually a way that we can kind of test where we stand in our relationships. I like to encourage people to, if it, when the time is right, you don't, you don't jump the gun, but it's a way of testing where you stand in a relationship with someone. Go explicit. Say, say to someone, are you willing to hold me accountable? Of course, we ask that. We don't ask the other. Are you, can I hold you accountable? Because <laughs> if I am, I've got a few things I'd like to say right now. <laughs> Rather, we begin with, can I count on you to hold me accountable? If I am being less than you know that I should be, I need you to tell me that. Ladies and gentlemen, do we have people in our lives that are doing that for us? If we don't have people in our lives that are doing that for us, then may, may I be bold and assure you that we are not seeing many ways in which we are failing. For in God's great providence, we are normally the weak ones in seeing where we need to be and what we need to do. It's that friend who can be trusted because, of course, he loves us. It's that friend who can look and see because love always sees what one most truly can be. Love can say to us, this is where you are falling short. This is where you are not being you. So, something that's very practical and simple to cultivate, we will not be able to succeed 
in this very difficult challenge of living the moral order that we're not getting very specific about, but that we've been talking about, we're not going to succeed in making that moral order our own, in having that deep interior transformation of growing in virtue, unless we're doing that together, of course, in God's providence, the beautiful vocation that many of us are called to of marriage assures us, well, should assure us, should be the foundation whereby we can at least turn to one person and say the type of words we were just saying, where we can have that confidence that someone's looking. Isn't it beautiful, this whole aspect of being held accountable? Note how this has this great aspect of not only do I have the opportunity to be shown by someone I trust where I'm falling short, but note how real friendship, again, I'm saying this in the context of thinking about spousal friendship, but any friendship, any friendship is an amazing inspiration to us to be what I know I should be. When we wake up in the morning, if, if, if we were wondering, or if it's going to be hard, how, how am I going to do it? How am I going to grow in virtue? How am I going to become the man I should become? If we think of those that we love, is that not the main inspiration, dare I say? If nothing else, I've got to keep working on becoming better because they depend upon it. My relationship with them depends upon it. For me to be with them and live with them in happiness and joy in right order, I've got to do this. For ladies and gentlemen, th this is the thing. At the end of the day, what is the moral order really most of all about? It's most of all about empowering us to live in relationship. For we must rest assured of this, it's a scary thought, to the extent that we are not growing in virtue, and becoming the men and women that we need to be, morally speaking, precisely to that, expense, to that extent we cannot have good relationships with those that we love. This is one of the things, and I'm going to move towards that in a moment, of what we want to say to other people out there. This is part of the great beauty. This is at the heart of the great beauty that is the moral order. It is the only way to live in relationships with other people. It is the only way really to be present to them, to live with them in joy. Moral character, Aristotle saw this, moral character is absolutely necessary to really live in love. What, 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 what a truth to try to have the young see. If you ever want to be able to really love and live in love, it demands the moral character of living well yourself. All right.
Now I'm going to turn to the area that I told you that I wanted to, wanted to share a few thoughts on. The way that I just want to tell you, the way the question was framed to me last time, the question and answer, someone said, these thoughts that you're sharing are very helpful and it, it, it's pointing to this beautiful uh, life that we're, called to do, that we're called to live, of responding to the gift of the right order, the moral order, and keeping things in their proper place, and living according to the commandments. But, but so many of those around us don't see this. And so how, how can we bring this to them? How could we explain this to them? Ladies and gentlemen, I'm just, I'm just going to share with you a couple thoughts. I, I, it's, it's not more than it is, but it's been the fruit of some reflection, and, and perhaps we can have a little discussion in the question and answer here. Last week, I noted that our own bad desires, our own bad habits, will often make us wants to deny that there is a moral order. The, the fact that we want to do things that we shouldn't want to do makes us want to say, and we do say this, and we noted this last time, we say this every time we sin, say, no, there isn't an objective moral order. I can say what's, I can say what's right or wrong. So we reasonably might then expand this and say, well, that's going on with these other people too. Right? It's just they're not living according to the moral order because they've got these bad desires, they want to live the bad way that they're living, and so they don't want to grant that there's a moral order. So it's very easy for us, it's very easy, ladies and gentlemen, dare I say, for us to become pharisaical. It's very easy for us to compliment ourselves as we're the ones who live according to the moral order, even though it's hard, we're the ones that are living according to the moral order. What's wrong with those people over there? Why don't they do what I'm doing? We're saying, I know it's hard, but look, obviously there's a moral order there. Just kind of look, see it, and let's go. I want to look again. I want to learn to look again at the people around us. And the first thing that strikes me, ladies and gentlemen, is I need to learn to look differently and to make difference, not to jump to conclusions about where people are. And so I'd like to share a couple thoughts with you of how we might look differently, how we might try to understand where people are who are not living according to the moral order. These people, so many. I mean, again, we live in a culture where we're constantly surrounded. I want, I wanna, I wanna look with slightly different eyes and, and encourage you too to look with me with slightly different eyes at why they might be where they are, and having seen that, maybe then be in a better position to try to draw them out of it. Living according to the moral order, ladies and gentlemen, and this is a key principle, demands great self-sacrifice or self-giving. Consider this with me for a moment. When you're confronted, when we are confronted with the objective moral order, there's something slightly terrifying about it. 
for, for considered. And this, it, maybe go to whatever area, in, in thinking about this, you can go to whatever area you struggle with most morally to see this. Isn't it, isn't it fascinating how you bump up against knowing that such and such, or I've, I've been told, I kind of have this intuition that this is wrong, but I'm experiencing having a great desire to do this. I mean, we could use some very ob obvious examples here, right? We don't need to. You, you fill in your own obvious example of having this experience of, I want to do this. And the thing is, want comes from deep within us. We, this is me here. I want to do this. I'm experiencing a strong desire to do this. But then something comes along and is saying, no, you can't do that. That's wrong. Stop. You're not allowed to do that. Or maybe, it, maybe, it's, maybe it's the other, I don't feel like doing something, and, and the moral order saying, you need to do this. Often, we probably more experience this, I want to do this, and I'm, and I'm told I'm not supposed to do this. So I'm kind of smack up against this moral order, which is kind of getting in my face and in some sense telling me what to do, but here I am experiencing deep from within, I don't want to do that. This is, this is very dramatic. Now we all know that, that yes, we experience that from when we're very young children and our parents help us deal with that and so forth. Well, indeed they do. Well, we hope that they do, and I want to talk for a couple moments about, about parents, but it just look with me at the drama of the objective, terrifying demand of the moral order, the demands of me that in some sense I say no to myself. That's always a very hard thing to do, to say no to myself. I even maybe experienced it as saying no to who I am in some way in order to correspond to the, to the moral order. Now, let's look at this, ladies and gentlemen. What if, in the face of that, what if I have a very low self-esteem? What if I have a very weak sense of who I am, but I, but I find myself called upon to say, to say no to myself, to give of myself in the face of that objective moral order? Here I am being demanded to give of myself, to deny myself, and I have a very low sense of self. Do you see where I'm going with this? That is going to be extremely difficult for me to do. And I think we need to appreciate that. Now I'm going to go a little bit more dramatic. I don't want to pretend to be a, a psychologist or a sociologist, but I do interest myself in these things, particularly because they can tell us a lot about who we are and the world that we live in. At times we look around ourselves and we think, why does there seem to be such a rejection of authority? Why do so many people, why does a whole young generation seem to just be saying no and in, in, in rebellion? I, you know, I was at a very interesting presentation not that long ago of a psychologist, a great Catholic psychologist who works at, what is it called, Family Research something, so I don't, I don't remember the exact, but in any case, the data, ladies and gentlemen, of the family in our society, you don't need me to tell you, is frightening. 
But one of the things that he said that particularly struck me was this. We have an entire generation of children, of young people, who are living with a feeling of alienation and abandonment. Because by and large, for a whole set of reasons, we don't have to go into, go into the details of which, they do not, they have not experienced, very simply, the loving presence of their parents. And by and large, they have been turned loose and not formed with the most fundamental of formations that needs to be given that says to young people, you are precious and you are lovable for who you are. They have not received that, many. Maybe many of them, some of them are in this room. Well, that, to the extent that that is the case, consider what difficulty these people have, we have, in then confronting a moral order that demands that you deny yourself, demands that you have a sense of self and be able to give of yourself. I'd like to suggest, ladies and gentlemen, at the heart of the human drama is authority. And that authority be exercised well. And what, at the end of the day, would I like to suggest to you, most of all is conveyed by good authority, and thus most of all must be conveyed. I hope you don't mind if I'm doing a little bit of an emphasis here that might be helpful for some of us as we think about our own families. The most of all needs to be happening in our homes is that authority needs to be experienced by those under it as an expression of love. If there's one thing that I suggest for our consideration that parents must convey to their children, it is that Everything we do is about your good. Is that not the essence of Christianity? That the fatherhood of God is that all I do is about you. That's what tells us who we are. And God has designed it that that is conveyed to children by the presence of the Father on earth in conveying, you are precious, and that's why we need you to live in a certain way. That's why there are rules that's why there is a moral order, because this is about your preciousness and your happiness. Is it any surprise that we live in open rebellion 
when we don't have a sense of this is for us. Ladies and gentlemen, I suggest for your consideration that we are facing a situation where the numbers of people, I mean, you, you can overgeneralize, but I invite you to think with me on this. I know this, this is a little offbeat. This wasn't what you were expecting. Well, I share it with you anyway. That we, as we look around at those around us, I, I invite you to look with the eyes of people who have not experienced the love that they need to experience. They do not need our moralizing very often. They do not need our condemnation. What they need is to be shown that they are loved and the beauty of the good life for which they were made. So if I might just, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wrap up here by saying, so positively then, how do we bring these things to others? A couple quick suggestions. To those that are living wrongly, and of course is that not all of us in some sense, to those that are living wrongly, what we need to do is not emphasize to them what they're doing wrong and why it's wrong. Honestly, I really think most of them have a kind of a natural sense that what they're doing is wrong. And that's part of the reason that they tend to be impervious to our arguments. When you, when you go to those that are, that are looking for homosexual marriage, it, in general, ladies and gentlemen, I don't think by and large what we need is the right arguments as to why marriage is between one man and one woman. They're not looking for that argument. They don't care about that argument. They won't hear that argument 99 out of 100 times. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not saying that there isn't an argument, and I'm not saying there's no context wherein that argument will need to be made. There is that argument. We need to be prepared with that argument. But by and large, I'm talking about being in contact with real people, real time, real life. In fact, what we need to do is not emphasize what people are doing wrong, but emphasize how beautiful it would be if they did something different than what they are doing, rather than arguing that what they're doing isn't right. Because honestly, I think that many, even perhaps most, already have some sense of that, but they've never known anything else. And it would be much more constructive to help point them towards the beauty of the positive. I'd like to wrap up here by emphasizing the moral order as a beautiful gift. The good human life as a challenge that, yes, is incredibly difficult, but is a plan of love. Ultimately, ladies and gentlemen, this whole thing was called walking with God, ethics in the Catholic tradition. Honestly, what can be said simply from the philosophical viewpoint? Much can be said just from the philosophical viewpoint, explaining what the good human life looks like. And Aristotle did a great job of that. 
At the end of the day, ladies and gentlemen, Aristotle's explanation and understanding of the good human life, as true as it, it's true now as it was then, is not alone what we need. What we need is the full bore truth of that order as being a gift from a loving God who is inviting us to relationship with him. And it is about walking with him, that the moral order is ultimately about God reaching out to us, offering to share his life with us, and saying, come, walk with me. And that, I suggest, needs to be our approach as we turn to those around us. Come, walk with us. Come walk with us, with God. The moral order is our privilege and our gift. If you look on your handout, I've, I've, I've ended with, had another quotation in there on friendship, but didn't refer to. My, my, my last quotation there, I would like to just share here, in, uh, close with having you picture with me the eighth chapter of the Gospel of St. John, where you know the story. Woman is caught in adultery. Surely she had, in fact, been committing adultery. What, what did the Pharisees want to do? They were right that what she had didn't done was seriously wrong, and they wanted to condemn her for it, and they wanted punishment. Well, you know the great line that our Lord delivered about casting the first stone. I just invite you to enter into his disposition right after that. And I'd just like to say, here's a meditation perhaps on us as ourselves experiencers of God's mercy, of what we might enter into for the sake of helping to draw others in perhaps to receive the gift that we've received. Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. No, he wasn't, he wasn't yet looking at her. He must have had a very strong sense of her shame. And I'm sure he was extremely delicate in not wanting to shame her any further. It says, but then Jesus looked up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and do not sin again. Thank you, Dr. Cudaback, for coming to St. Francis. Um, if on, a, on a natural level, if a person has no experience of what a true friendship actually is, will that lack of experience on a natural level hinder the experience of friendship with the Lord? Again, great, great issue. I, I, I love the, th I, I think, yes. I love the theme of experience of true friendship on the natural level is a great teacher to us of what our relationship should be like with God. That's not to say, I mean, amazing, sorry, that 
This came out as a very banal statement. Grace is amazing. Um, grace, we can through our experience. I mean, God offers us in John, John chapter 15, it says, I have called you friends. So it might be the case that we actually first are exposed to that. I think for some that might be the case. We're conferred to us by God, although in the, that God's advances to us map onto our experience in the context, and again this kind of goes back to the children, of our having been prepared, of our having, so cultivating true friendship, helping children be prepared for true friendship, really is an excellent preparation for their under to us when he offers us friendship, when he offers us fatherhood thing in the context of our human... So I think I'm about to be shut down. Isn't it amazing how we can bring the mercy and the love that Christ wants to show them in their brokenness? We might be able to be to the woman caught in adultery. That person who's just there, always bearing in mind the truth. Here to love and show why. Don't sin again. Thanks for that question. In order to relate meaningfully with someone who they believe in God, um, in, 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 well, do you have to first know the um, believe interaction discussion? Um, that is going to be a key truth that you are going to need to discern. But I think it doesn't come in the form of a question. Do you, uh, we, we, which is not what you were asking, we, we have our antennae, uh, don't, we're going to have to be in the position to help move them better towards it and help them think more clearly. And, and, and that's, that's, it's an art. It's very hard to, to know at times how to do that. And this is why it is important for us to be studying these things. And even if we're not going to go, go out there and be making specific arguments to them, to be able to speak ourselves about these things in, in, by way of giving witness. Just a, just a quick, quick, quick example. I think you might not know yet where the person is, but you can still kind of come forward with something where it's people, what people I think in general find appealing is do we give a witness of, you know, I'm, I'm so moved by the great challenge of, of living in fidelity to my wife. You know, what a wonderful way to present the positive of the moral order and how we see it in its truth and terror as something that is a beautiful challenge for us. So I, I, I almost would recommend, and I'm not sure if I heard your question then rightly, but kind of moving forward with a certain confidence of whether they believe in it or not, we're going to speak of what is true as though it is true because it is true, knowing that there's something in them that that will be appealing to, particularly by us just moving forward in, in a looking at the beauty of it, of it kind of way. But yeah, particularly if you're going to go deeper, though, you are going to have to, hopefully you could have conversations about that explicitly. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, 
please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.